around the room, Christmas comes in many colors. I mean, for most of us, and we talk about Christmas coming in many colors, red and green are the classic go-to colors for the holiday. The old carol, I don't know how many of you remember it, the holly and the ivy, speaks to why these two colors, red and green, have become synonymous with Christmas. The holly with its deep green leaves is associated with the crown of thorns that Jesus will later wear, and its beautiful red berries remind us that it's through Jesus' blood that we are forgiven. Now, there's red and there's green, and of course, there are those who dream of a white Christmas, the whimsical hope for snow to fall from the sky on Christmas Eve particularly is best captured in a song first recorded by Bing Crosby. Unfortunately, the odds of this happening in Southern California are pretty small. And then there is another color that describes Christmas for many, the color blue. The invocation of this color at Christmas time goes all the way back to the king. I'm not talking about Jesus, thank you very much. I'm talking about Elvis. You got that, that was good, okay. I worked really hard on that, I'm just kidding. At this time of year, Elvis is famous for crooning that famous and catchy lamentation which acknowledges this holiday isn't the most wonderful time of the year for everyone. For many, there is a magic, a spirit about this season, but for others, Christmas can be a sad and depressing experience where it feels like there's not even a spark of joy to be found. As we return to the book of Hebrews this Advent season, the writer of this letter is about to, in his own way, acknowledge the reality that often gets lost or maybe gets covered up during the holidays. That the picture often painted at Christmas time doesn't exactly line up with the world we see around us. With that introduction, I invite you to read the scripture with me on the screen or in your Bible. As the writer writes, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reminder, if you haven't been with us, this letter is being written to a Hellenistic Jewish Christian community. And Hellenistic Jews were Jews who were followers of the way of Moses, the law, the Torah, but they were Hellenistic in that they had also adopted the Greco-Roman practices and culture around them. This culture, this community is being written to in the midst of increased persecution. They're being tempted to embrace a watered-down, less contentious view of who Jesus is. And in response, as we've seen over these last weeks, the writer of this letter is encouraging his audience to not lose sight of the absolute distinctiveness and superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is more than, better than any human prophet or heavenly angel. And having addressed this, the superiority of Christ as God's son, 
the focus in what we're reading now shifts to the significance of what we celebrate at Christmas time the incarnation of God coming down to earth in the flesh through Jesus. The writer begins, as you, as you heard, by declaring yet another way that Christ is superior, is to be distinguished particularly from the angels in terms of the world to come. It's subject to him alone. And to support this assertion, if you didn't recognize where it was from, the writer then quotes a portion of Psalm 8, a beautiful hymn of praise, Psalm 8, where God is praised. But if you read this psalm carefully, even the little excerpt that we have here in Hebrews, or if you go back and read Psalm 8, what's interesting is this hymn seems to be marveling about the dignity God bestowed on humanity at creation. That's the them, us. This writer is marveling at the dignity that God bestowed on humanity over and above the angels. In comparison with the limitless, vast reaches of universes upon universes, what are human beings, the psalmist writes, so seemingly insignificant against the cosmic landscape of all that exists that God should be mindful of us, creating us, humanity, in his own image. And even more than this, as you hear, crowning humanity with the glory and honor of having authority Overall creation. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? God creating us in his image and saying, all of this, all that you can see, all that you will discover is yours. You have authority over all creation. This psalm is about humanity. And yet here in Hebrews, this letter, the writer is interpreting these words in reference to Jesus Christ and not to humankind in general. And it begs the question, why? Well, the answer speaks to one of the most important reasons for the incarnation, why we needed Christmas to happen. Because while it's true that we as human beings are created in the image of God, and while it is also true that in the beginning, the Lord bestowed the privilege and responsibility of being stewards over all creation to us, there's a problem. In our rejection of this privilege... And our rebellion against this responsibility, in our repeated efforts to go our own way, to live for ourselves, to ignore, to deny, and outright disobey God's direction and will for our lives through our sin, we have fractured God's image in us. We have badly damaged our relational connection to our creator and thus our relational connection to this world, all creation, including our lives. Our relationships to our creator, our relationships with ourselves, our relationships to each other, and our relationship with all created things is one broken, chaotic, disheveled, painful, big, hot mess. And we can look around and see this. This is why the world is the way that it is. And so by reinterpreting this psalm and making it prophetic, and that's really what the writer does here, is he takes this psalm and makes it prophetic in pointing to the coming of Jesus. The writer of this letter is revealing that one of the reasons God came down in Christ, one of the reasons why God became a little lower than the angels for a while, became one of us. God became human in Jesus Christ so that through Jesus, God could heal the damage we've done. Restore the relational connection we've lost. Lead and empower us to fulfill our divinely envisioned purpose and to reach our eternal destiny. 
part of the gift of Christmas, of Christ, is that in Jesus, we witness the true dignity and potential of our humanity realized. I've said this to you many, many times before, but it's so underappreciated. Part of why God comes to us in Christ when we read the Gospels, when we look at Jesus, is so that we can see this is who you are. This is your humanity the way I created it to be. This is what you look like when we're in sync together. Jesus, in other words, the writer wants us to see, if you'll forgive me for putting it this way, the writer wants us to see Jesus is the man. Jesus is the the man. He is the potential of our humanity realized, the true dignity and potential of it realized. As the Apostle Paul will put it elsewhere, Jesus is the second Adam. Unlike the first Adam, who represents the failure of our humanity, Jesus is the quintessential embodiment of our humanity at its intended best, of being all that we were meant to be to ourselves, to each other, and to God. In the coming of Christ, the writer is pointing us towards the vision of a better world, a world overseen and taken care of by humans, living creatively and wisely together in perfect concert and entrusting obedience to God. It is the picture of all those things we sing about at Christmas time, right? That's what it is. It's the picture of all those things we sing about at Christmas time peace on earth, goodwill to men. Ransoming the captives free, tidings of comfort and joy. No more sin and sorrow grow, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. But here's the rub. Here's the tension. Here's why Christmas for many tends to be blue rather than red and green or silver and gold. If we're honest, we look around And this is not the world we see. Contrary to what we sing, what we experience is a world still very much full of division and anger. A world still very much full of oppression and suffering. History hasn't changed much in the more than 2,000 years that God came down to earth in Christ. I mean... Between sex trafficking, child soldiering, debt laborers, the yoke of slavery extends perhaps to the greatest length it ever has in the human experience. Today, the rod of the oppressor, be it wielded by a dictator or an opportunistic legislator, continues to be brought down on the backs of those who are being denied basic human needs and rights. And the lives of the next generation continue to be sacrificed. Entire communities are decimated because war and violence rage on around the globe. As the boots of the tramping warriors, as well as the garments rolled in blood, continue to multiply. In the more than 2,000 years since God came down to earth in Christ, our world looks a lot more like the one described by the prophet Isaiah than it does the one envisioned by the writer of this letter. And that's just the big picture. That's just the big picture. If we narrow the lens and get more personal, get more intimate, get more individualized, the image does not necessarily improve. For some of us, this has been a year of grievances and losses. Somewhere, do you remember where? Somewhere along the way in 2019, the script of your life got flipped And you're still staggering 
from all the hits you've taken, the loss of a loved one, an unexpected accident or tragedy, the diagnosis or worsening of an injury or an illness, a relapse back into addiction, the shock and pain of a divorce or some other rupture in the fabric of our family, a sudden dismissal from our place of work and the prolonged lack of a job. For some of us sitting here today, we can't wait for 2019 to go. And then there are those of us for whom all that, everything I just described, that was last year or the year before that or many years back and it's welcome to the party, pal, because things haven't gotten better. In fact, we might argue in some ways, if that's where you're living right now, things are actually worse. As the ghosts of the past, the present and the future forever haunt us, memories and regrets from our past of what once was or what might have been, annoying, destructive, and disempowering habits and attitudes that continue to cripple us in the present, nagging fears and growing worries that cloud our view of the future. Joy to the world, the song goes. But not everyone feels joyful during Christmas. Many of us struggle with the incessant expectations of holiday cheer that come with this season. If we find ourselves feeling anxious during the holidays, whether about the condition of the world, the state of our family, the prospect of the future, or anything else, what do we do? What do we do when the lights, the festive music, the decorations, the cards tell us all is merry and bright, but all we can perceive, all we can see is darkness? When you're in that space, if you're in that space, typically on our own, we make one of two choices. The first, the first choice is to retreat into despair and cynicism. If that's where you're living, if that's where you are, it, you cut yourself off from everyone else, physically or at least emotionally, right? We're present, we're here, but we do not engage. We speak, but as little as possible. We remain closed off. Anger and sadness are what we sow in. Anger and sadness over and over. And after a while, anger and sadness, if that's all that we have to sow, it gradually, maybe this is where you are. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Anger and sadness, given enough time, becomes gradually bitterness and resentment. We lash out or we just silently seethe as others try to coax us to join the fun, the festivities. We take out our frustrations on others, but really, it's ourselves we are punishing. And it doesn't take long for our blue Christmas to become black. To become black as we just surrender to the darkness as we just harden our hearts like the Grinch. Truth be told, part of the reason some of us head down this path is in reaction to the second, the other choice some people make when Christmas feels more blue than white. And that second choice is not to retreat into despair and cynicism. No, that second choice is to buy into the fantasy of Christmas. Not of what Christmas actually is, but of what we want, what we try to make Christmas to be. 
I'm talking about the sanitized Christmas celebration, the one where we try to clean up everything in our lives, the one where we try to sweep it all under the rug, the messiness and brokenness of our lives, the pain and suffering of this world by covering it with fancy decorative wrapping and topping it with a nice little colorful bow. We work really hard to make everything shiny and clean, neat and tidy. We hide the truth behind the magic of make-believe. And one of the most common manifestations of this behavior is our tendency to live in the nostalgia, to live in the nostalgia of our idealized and therefore imagined Christmas past. Romancing the past is a tried and true way of constructing a false version of what was as a means of ignoring or denying the reality of what is, of avoiding and refusing to engage the trajectory of what we perceive will be. I mean, think about it. A lot of popular holiday music plays on this, our tendency to rewrite history. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know. These songs play on our tendency to edit our recollection of the way things were and to preserve, to remember the good stuff, but to forget everything that wasn't good. And so we use all the holiday trimmings around this time of year, all the colorful lights, all the artificial trees, all the decorating and dressing up as a way of sugarcoating our lives of burying or covering our pain and our grief, of hiding our everyday blemishes and flaws that are in our less than perfect lives. And I know right now I'm popping some bubbles here, you know, some balloons. But here's the thing, guys. While that Christmas fantasy we try to create that some of us just love, that Christmas fantasy we try to create may look sugary and sweet, but it can be hard to swallow when the illusion is shattered when the magic is lost. But the thing is, we aren't limited to those two choices. That's the gospel. We aren't limited to those two choices. We don't have to retreat to cynicism and despair, and we don't have to live in a fantasy and re-remember, edit our past. We're not invited into those two choices. The reality of Christmas, not as we imagine it, but as it is, doesn't ask us to live in a fantasy of blissful denial. It doesn't leave us no choice but to end up like a sour old Grinch. Because the Christmas of the Bible doesn't deny the brokenness of this world. The Christmas of the Bible doesn't try to cover up or hide life's hardships, disappointment, and hurt under a cozy blanket of marshmallowy snow. The Christmas of the Bible never denies that the carols of the season are sometimes mingled with songs of sorrow. Because the Christmas of the Bible, as the writer points us to here, is about incarnation. The Christmas of the Bible is about the divine becoming enfleshed. The Christmas of the Bible is about the embodiment of eternity, of God being present in the real human flesh and blood living of this world with all its sorrows and its struggles. I mean, really, despite our manger scenes, despite our Christmas cards, if you think about it, the first Christmas, the Christmas of the Bible was more blue than it was red or green, silver or gold. 
The first Christmas, the Christmas of the Bible, I mean, seriously, was a bewildering and reorienting life experience. Despite what we love to sing, and I love to sing it too, the first Christmas, the Christmas of the Bible, was not all is calm, all is bright. With the coming of the first Christmas, according to the Bible, a pending marriage was rattled, a divorce was considered, a family was exiled to give birth to their first child in a space normally reserved for animals. My friends, there can be no doubt Christmas doesn't deny pain or suffering because after all, a woman labored and gave birth that night. A newborn babe cried out, straining for his first breath, waiting to be warmly bundled against the stark cold of the air. Jesus did not come into a picture-perfect world that we see on Christmas cards or safely sentimentalize for our annual Christmas children's pageants. There was blood and there were tears. It was messy and it was uncomfortable. The angel of peace, the angel promise of peace and goodwill was announced in the middle of a world then, just like now, that was filled with conflict and violence. In the arms of a young, impoverished, and isolated couple, in the midst of a troubled world, of an empire ruled by an emperor who demanded to be worshipped as a god, of a territory within that empire managed by a king driven so mad with jealousy, he literally commits genocide to secure his throne. Into the chaos in which we live, into the darkness we know so well, God came down to earth in Christ. And so I want to pause for a moment. It's been crazy, the holiday rush, the busyness, right? I want to pause for a moment and acknowledge our grief. I want to acknowledge our grief. For some of you, this is opening the floodgates. For others of you, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. I'm great. This sermon sucks. (laughs) I ain't lying. I'm still going to pause and take a moment to acknowledge our grief, even if you won't. Because I want those who are willing not to be like this, but who are willing to be like this, to know that you don't have to hide or deny your messiness or your melancholy. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Maybe not you, but some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us need to have it said out loud that it is okay to be blue when everyone else is green and red or silver and gold. It's more than okay. There's nothing wrong with you if that's where you are. There's nothing wrong with you if heartache instead of holiday cheer is all you can muster these days. None of us, none of us have to put on a pretend face in order to experience Christmas. And if you have just been putting on a fake smile these last few days, these last few weeks, take a moment and take it off. Take it off. Because guys, if the world was already perfect, if everything was as it should be, if there was never death, never tragedy, never disease, never evil, then Christmas would not have been necessary. God came down to earth. Incarnation happened. Jesus was born because Christmas, among other things, Christmas is a response to the grief. 
Christmas is a response to the havoc of this world, to the shattering of our lives, to the brokenness of our relationships. And in order to truly experience Christmas, in order to truly encounter Christ, we cannot look away. We have to confront the darkness all around us. But confronting the darkness doesn't mean we have to give in to the pain and the suffering we are experiencing. Whatever you're confronting this morning, whatever you're confronting, your sense of loss or absence, a feeling of loneliness or isolation, a fear or uncertainty about tomorrow, or even if you're just sitting here today and you're just bearing a heavy heart for the tragedy and brokenness of this world, you've got to lay hold of hope. Notice in this letter, the writer admits the disconnect. He doesn't shy away from it. The writer admits the disconnect between the world to come and the world as it is. He writes, quite simply, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. We do not see, in other words, the world as it should be, the world as it's going to become. And the interesting thing is, before he goes on, and I mentioned this at the start of the sermon series, and I'm bringing it back up again. We're in the second chapter of Hebrews. Up till this point, The writer has not specifically named Jesus. The writer has simply been speaking about the Son of God with the understanding that everyone, including us, knows exactly to whom he's referring. But now, at this pivotal moment, having acknowledged all we cannot see, that the world is not the way that it should be, the writer now, here, goes on to point the only thing that is visible to us. As for the first time, he uses the name the name of the only one we can see in the dark. But we do see Jesus. Are you seeing Jesus? Whenever we feel isolated and lonely, wherever we become burdened with a load of cares and sorrow, in whatever way we find ourselves overcome with worries and doubts, we can be tempted We can be so tempted to think God doesn't understand, that the Lord doesn't know how hard it is right now, that the Lord doesn't know what we're going through. But part of the the hope that we lay hold of at Christmas time is that God makes himself able to be seen by us. But we do see Jesus. God makes himself visible in the person of Jesus. God came down to earth in Christ to show us He gets it. He gets it. He gets what we're feeling. He gets all we're going through. Hearing our cries, Jesus came to stand in solidarity with us. And more than just companionship, God in Christ seeks to bring us through to the other side of our troubles, self-inflicted or otherwise. Anywhere we are tempted to resign ourselves to fear or to loss or ultimately to death, remember and do not forget, but we do see Jesus. Jesus is born. Jesus comes to fight for life, to fight to the death for our lives. Or as the writer of this letter phrases it, did you catch this? God in Christ comes to suffer death for us, to taste death for everyone so that we might eternally feast on God's grace. That life, this world to come, 
is the Christmas for which we are now waiting. Do you know that? Why do we keep celebrating Christmas? Because Christmas on this side of the manger is not about sentimentality, looking backward towards the birth of a child. Christmas on this side of the manger is anticipating, getting excited, dreaming and hoping and waiting for the Christmas to come. The Christmas to come, guaranteed by the work of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb. Christmas now is about looking ahead, not looking back, looking forward to the gift of a new heaven and a new earth, the end of a long winter and the beginning of a new glorious everlasting summer. Christmas is about not believing in make-believe magic of Santa or elves. Christmas is about having faith in the deeper, real magic of the gospel. That's what we sing about this time of year. The promise and hope of a time of a life without grief. A life without mourning or pain or tears or suffering forever. By the way, this is the whole reason why earlier Christians placed the celebration of Christmas on December 25th. If you're getting all caught up of how did they know when Jesus was born, they didn't. But they put it on December 25th because they wanted to line something that we see all the time with the biblical description of Jesus being the light that has come into the world. The light that overcomes the darkness was being connected with what people experience this time of year. And what I'm talking about is the winter solstice when the darkness outside is at its apex and the light is most needed and therefore when the light comes, it shines most beautifully. Early Christians wanted us, when we see that in nature, not just to give grace and thanksgiving for the sun, S-U-N, but to remember even more importantly, the sun, S-O-N, the light that has come into the darkness. Because none of us, none of us are strangers to darkness We have or we will experience darkness in other forms besides the night sky. Again, darkness falls. Darkness falls when we lose someone dear to us and everything suddenly grows dimmer because of the absence of someone who brightly illuminated our world. Darkness falls, but we do see Jesus. Darkness falls when we stumble and fall into the hole of depression, you know, where every effort to move up and on is such a struggle that seems to push us down deeper and further away from those we love. Darkness falls, but we do see Jesus. Darkness falls when we find ourselves estranged, separated from someone we were once close to as conflict and disagreement forge a barrier or worse, burn a bridge between a family member or a friend. The darkness falls and it's real, but we do see Jesus. Darkness falls when we reach out and Limit, reach our limit, right? And max out our resources financially, emotionally, physically, and we begin to live our lives on borrowed time. Are you living on borrowed time these days? When we begin to live on borrowed time, when we begin to live out of a place of deficit, out of a place of recurring debt that just continues to spiral out of control, or is that your darkness? Because that darkness is real and that darkness falls, but we do see 
Jesus. Darkness falls. If we dare turn on and stare into the state of the world around us, instead of burying our head in the sand or just covering our ears and going, la, 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 la. If we dare to turn on and tune into the state of the world around us, we will see the darkness. As reports of corruption and abuse, hatred and violence, death and destruction seem to perpetually be the news of the day, that darkness is real. But we do see Jesus. We have to be honest. We have to be honest about the struggles of this life. We have to be honest. This is why we gather to confess, not just to confess our sin. That is important. But we gather to confess our heartbreak. We gather to confess our loss. We gather to confess our disappointments. We gather to confess our fear. For those whose lives feel like they're just hanging by a thread, for those who have nearly given up, for those who only know tears, the darkness is real. And this needs to be a place where the darkness is okay because if it isn't, where else can they go? Where else can you go? We have to be honest that the darkness is real. But in the same breath, then we can say, then we can hold on to the fact that Christmas is God's response to the darkness. Christmas is God's consolation in the midst of the reality of our grief. Christmas is God's delivery to us of a living hope. Hope that is pregnant with possibility. Hope that springs eternal. Hope that does not disappoint because it is the hope of God with us. And for us, always. The darkness is real. But the darkness is not all there is to see. Christmas is about being able to see God in the flesh. Christmas is about choosing to see and to take hold of the light. The light that has come into the world. The light that shines in the darkness. The light that the darkness cannot overcome. And that light that we see is Jesus. Amen.